trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. Oh, man, I am feeling bold and spicy on this Monday. And that's to your good fortune because I have a marvelous assortment of uh, articles and commentaries and authors to introduce you to. And and I want to start with something that I saw earlier today that just it, it hit just the right uh, chord in my heart. And and it was a, a meme that uh, that I'm, I'm going to shamelessly adopt as as part of my own uh, this this is part of why I do what I do. The goal of this program is not to awaken the sheep. It is to awaken the sleeping lions. I can't tell you how many times in the course of doing this program over the years and I've been I've been doing the talk radio thing for well a little over 25 years. And I can't tell you how many times I have either uttered the words or I have heard one of my dedicated listeners say, we just got to wake people up. We got to wake people up. Why won't the sheeple wake up? And I kind of feel bad for using that pejorative uh, sheeple, um, even though it may in some instances feel like, well, that's a pretty accurate way of describing, though, how how people act, how they think, how they behave. Yeah, I, I get it. But look, sheep are going to be like sheep until until they have a reason until they have some justification to break out of that uh, mentality where it's easier to just blend in with the herd or follow the herd or wait for someone a sheepdog a shepherd or something to uh, to prompt them which way you know they need to go on the other hand I do believe that it is, uh, it's it's the sleeping lions to whom I am speaking. Actually, the fact that you're listening to me right now means you're probably not sleeping. You're one of the lions who you may have been awake for longer than I have. Chances are I may have learned something from you. But it's not about being a wide-awake sheep. Do you see the difference? A wide-awake sheep is still going to stand there and, okay, I'm awake, but uh, now I'm waiting for the shepherd or for the sheepdog to nip me and send me off in the right direction. You're not a sheep. You never were a sheep. And it seems like we've come upon times where what we really need are people who have that heart of a lion who are willing to uh, to rouse themselves from the sleep, which, by the way, most all of us have experienced. The, the comfort of modern life makes it very, very easy for us to, to uh, sit out most of the the battles going on around us. And, and, you know, most of these are figurative. They're, they're in the arena of ideas. And we choose not to engage because, let's face it, there are a lot of other things we could be doing. There are a lot of comfortable places you could be sitting, things you could be snacking on, games or shows or, or things online, sports, ways that we could divert our attention that are much more pleasant than getting in there and standing for something which is tough because it always comes with a price. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, too. I'm going to share with you uh, some thoughts. I may have to do this in the next hour. Alan Stevo, in a piece published on LewRockwell.com, has a marvelous take 
on why we must stand up to the to the lynch mob. And I'm not talking the Juicy Smollett lynch mob or uh, what was the dude's name, uh, Bubba, the NASCAR driver who thought he saw a noose hanging in the, the garage where his car was kept. I'm talking about the lynch mob that stands around and, and harasses people and treats people as less than human over things like you're not wearing your mask or you're not wearing your mask correctly. All right, I'm going to go off on a tangent if I'm not careful. I want to come back to something that uh, that hopefully will help strengthen you as a lion, someone who stands for something. I'm not telling you what to stand for. You do understand that, right? I'm just suggesting that I bet in, in your heart there are ideas or ideals or principles that resonate with you. Not just a matter of, yeah, that sounds good. You know, I mean... It's a part of who you are. It's something for which you would be willing to stick your neck out to put what's most precious in your life on the line. In fact, you'd give up most things. Maybe outside of your family, you would give up a job, a reputation, a friendship, your status or your standing among so-called polite society in order to, in order to stand for the proper ideals. There's nothing wrong with this. But we've got to be pretty uh, sharp in our thinking. And this is where Paul Rosenberg is such a marvelous helper and mentor. I, I mean, look, as much as we want to think, well, the choices in life are going to appear to us in the form of very clear black and white decisions. Come on. We know that's very seldom the case. Life is filled with nuance. And on top of that, there are no shortage of people out there who will resort to using sophistry to further blur the lines for us. So being able to see through fallacies and sophistry and distortion and deception, that's a very handy tool. Paul Rosenberg has been doing a series, I think he's up to seven essays now, about common fallacies that you and I will encounter as we are doing our best to sift truth from error. And this latest one is, is a dandy. Oh, it's a good one. It's word formulas. Now, there's another term for this. Uh, Paul Rosenberg says, The fallacies I'm calling word formulas, and there are many varieties, are properly called syllogistic fallacies. But people are going to look at you like, what? <laughs> what kind of words are you using here? Uh, syllogistic fallacies. That is, they're syllogisms that are used poorly. Now, a syllogism is, in fact, a word formula. And you can go back to Aristotle to uh, you know get the credit for defining them, though people certainly used them beforehand. This is what a classic syllogism sounds like. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. So you can see kind of the mathematical structure of this. Thought A plus thought B equals conclusion C. Now, Paul Rosenberg says people who study logic use precise terms for these parts. The ones above would be major premise, minor premise, and conclusion. But in simple terms, these are formulas built of words rather than numbers. And if used very precisely, a syllogism is just fine. The Socrates example that he uses is a true statement. Socrates was a man, and it turns out he was mortal. But he says there are serious problems with syllogisms. And the first is to use them badly. Okay, so here's an example. I've known eight drunks. All were Spaniards. Therefore, all drunks are Spaniards. 
Now, obviously, eight drunks is a very small percentage of all drunks, says Paul Rosenberg, and there's no reason to think there couldn't be any other kind. Still, the statement above is in the form of a syllogism, and errors like this, although hopefully not as obvious, happen all the time. He says the other problem with word formulas is a far larger problem, and this is it. Numbers are precise, but words are not. The number two will always be the same every time it is used anywhere in the world, anywhere in the universe. Even a wild number like pi, which we still can't define perfectly, is always the same everywhere in the universe. Now contrast that certainty with words. Even the most common words have fuzzy definitions. Consider these common words which nearly everyone seems to use a bit differently. Happy. Nice. Super. Okay. Tall. See, Paul Rosenberg says, in fact, most words, words take on different meanings depending on their context. He says, if I say that Bob is very tall, it has a much different meaning than describing an office building as very tall. Six and a half feet is a long way from 800 feet. Such words are fine for everyday speech, but he says they're not fine for a formula. If we accept words as having a mathematic certainty, we're almost certain to fall into error especially in longer arguments. So a fuzzy word in the first statement, a little bit wrong or even a little uncertain, can lead to massive errors just a couple of statements later. So here's how the trick works. He says, while many syllogistic errors are honest mistakes, here's how, how it's used as a uh, dirty trick. And he gives the example of watching a televised argument between a man from the political left and another from the right. The issue of the day was a Middle Eastern group called Hamas who was presently firing rockets at a couple of residential neighborhoods in Israel. The man from the left was defending Hamas. The man from the right was condemning them. And the conversation went like this. Left said, well, we all believe in supporting democracies, don't we? Right? Yes, of course. Left, well, Hamas was democratically, democratically elected. Right, mumbles uncomfortably. And left says, and so you must support Hamas. Now, because he had accepted the premise of the man on the left, the first statement about democracies... Paul says the man on the right was more or less forced to conclude that he should support Hamas, a group bombing families as they sat at their dinner tables. And the trick worked because of two things. The man of the right followed uncritically a formula built of words. And secondly, he, accept, he accepted a first statement that was questionable as if it were a perfect statement. You see how that works? I'm going to come back to this in just a few moments. There's one final point I want to make. Again, this is Paul Rosenberg's essay on word formulas, part of his uh, series on fallacies. And yes, you will find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. Remember, the goal here is we are all trying to become the best version of ourselves as possible. You are not like my kids gathered around my easy chair as I sit there with my pipe in hand and my perfectly brill-creamed hair dispensing fatherly advice. I'm just sharing with you some of the some of the great content that I am privy to on a daily basis. And by the way, you can be as well. Most of this stuff could be landing in your email inbox simply for as much time as it takes you to subscribe. Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Look under the page, 
resources for wrong thinkers. You're going to find a lot of great stuff, including a link to point you toward uh, Paul Rosenberg, who has had a marvelous impact on my thinking over the last few years. His essay about word formulas teaches you about a trick in which you might be forced to accept a premise that, you, that isn't exactly right, and it can be used to back you into a corner rhetorically. Now, this is not about winning the argument so much as it is about making sure you're not falling prey to faulty thinking. Do you see the difference? Getting your logical fallacies sorted out, getting to where you recognize them and you know, know how to counter them when you encounter them, it's not about being right all the time. If you are a student of logic and if you study logic, it doesn't mean everything you say is going to be absolutely right. But I will tell you, it does mean you're going to be wrong a lot less simply because you won't allow yourself to fall into errors, whether it's due to your own thinking or someone trying to lead you into a false argument. Now, he talked about how the trick of the word formula worked because if you follow uncritically a formula built of words, That's the first problem. Secondly, you may find yourself accepting a statement that's questionable as if it were a perfect statement. Now he says, I think we can bypass another explanation of point number one, treating word formulas like we do math formulas. Words are not the same as numbers. Words have to be defined. You've got to make sure that people are defining their terms or you could be talking past each other about two totally different things. But he says, I think I should explain point number two. In the example he gave of the guys arguing about Hamas, which was dropping rockets on some Israeli settlement, well, Hamas was elected, elected, elected democratically, and therefore we must support those that are elected democratically. He says, by accepting we all believe in democracy, the man on the right accepted something that was really a statement of faith. Democracy, of course, is the great political idol of our time, the sort of thing that everyone will nod their heads to and Paul Rosenberg says that is a core problem. Regardless of democracy being the greatest thing possible or the worst, agreeing to something because everyone else agrees with it is a primary error. Everyone else doesn't make anything right. Something is true if it matches reality. So let's be very clear. Everyone believing it or no one believing it doesn't make anything more true or less true. Now you understood that, right? But sometimes we need a little reinforcement, and I'm grateful for Paul Rosenberg, again, pointing out what what our mothers and our grandmothers and others in our lives have tried to teach us. Just because everybody thinks that's the case doesn't necessarily mean that it squares with reality. Paul Rosenberg says true statements stand on their own. False statements fall on their own. Popular opinion can change like the winds and very frequently wanders far from the truth. Popular opinion, in fact, is where liars and manipulators ply their craft on a full-time basis. So he says, everyone believing in democracy, even if it's true, matters nothing. And by buying into that, the man on the right stepped into a trap. Now he says, before we finish this section, let's go back to honest mistakes. Many people will accept a word formula argument because of the appeal to authority that we covered previously. But usually it's an appeal to authority combined with confusion. And it goes more or less like this. We find a structured argument being pushed toward us and feel a bit intimidated by it, perhaps fearing that we'll be exposed as being not very smart or educated. Secondly, being intimidated, our thinking either slows down or freezes. 
And when the next step of the argument comes along, we're not ready to process it and we get confused. Our mind loses its grip on the argument. And third, in that condition, we instinctively go for the opinion backed by authority, feeling that's the safest. Now he says, bear in mind, step number three involves built-in brain routines. Our brains divide automatically and within 40 milliseconds between higher and lower status choices. That's the kind of thing we fall back into without fully realizing it when we're confused and rushed. And you'll notice in many of these fallacies, when it comes to countering them, every time he'll say, take a moment to step back and start over. And it usually is something as simple as saying, whoa, hold on a second. Let me make sure that I understand what you're saying. And then try to restate what it is that that they're saying. But you're buying yourself time for your brain not to default in the wrong direction. He says, when you encounter a word formula, the one thing you want to really keep in mind is that they're not to be trusted. There is a small chance that the word formula will be correct and a much larger chance that it will not. Being critical in advance isn't a very good thing in most of life, but he says it is when encountering word formulas, treating them as suspect as a fitting starting position. Now, he says, once past that, remember, watch for imprecise words and especially watch for feelings of intimidation or confusion. And if you feel those, take a step back and start over slowly, saying something like, wait, please, I want to be sure I'm following your argument here. You're saying that every democracy is always good in everything it does, and you'd like me to agree with that? He says, from there, it's fairly easy. I hope you find this as useful as I do. I just, I love Paul Rosenberg's ability to share these things in in just clear, easy-to-understand terms. Maybe it's because I'm a simple guy. (laughs) I'm not not a particularly sophisticated man. But uh, I, I love clear thinking. And I love things that help us overcome, um, whether it's, you know, direct uh, subterfuge or distraction or attempts by others to either deceive or manipulate us. That is that is the one thing that, that just really frustrates me is the idea that someone is trying to deliberately steer me off course, even if it's only by a degree or two. If they're doing it deliberately, That's as evil as telling me a full-on, bold-faced lie. And something else we have to watch out for, and that is fear. Because fear is a very useful tool in the hands of power seekers and opportunists. I think we've learned that uh, a time or two this past year. I've got an article here from Dr. Gianta Bhattacharya about how facts, not fear or what we need to stop the pandemic. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research, another magnificent organization to whom you should subscribe for their daily email. I promise you will find it worth your time. They send out uh, about a half dozen new articles every single day, and it's good stuff. This This is nourishing food for thought. Much of it is above my head, but I read it anyway because that's the only way we ever improve, is by tackling things that are above our heads. Dr. Bhattacharya says that the media relishes negative news. If it bleeds, it leads, still holds true, and perhaps, he says, it's never been truer than in the COVID-19 era. Every day, the news highlights the spread of the virus and tells the sad story of some of its victims. And yet, he points out, much of the media does not pay sufficient attention to the good news surrounding improved treatments, 
and survival of patients with the coronavirus. In fact, in contrast with the international media, the American press has been unrelentingly negative in its COVID coverage, even when there is good news to tell. And the negativity is part of what fuels a culture of fear that affects local, state, and federal politicians and the decisions that they make. We're going to come back to this in a few moments, but I'm going to ask you to to think seriously about this. And if you don't agree, that's fine. You don't have to. But have you seen evidence of how that fear is being used to justify some things that I don't think a sane person would would have ever thought possible? Even a year ago, we'd have said, what, really? You could get arrested just for going for a walk, just for leaving your house in Los Angeles County? And yet here we are today. And fear is the biggest part of driving that kind of policy. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back Thank you again for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. I'm sharing an article from Dr. I've heard this doctor referred to as Dr. J. Bhattacharya, Dr. Gianta Bhattacharya, one of the signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration. And this is Facts, Not Fear, Will Stop the Pandemic. It's a piece published on the American Institute for Economic Research web- website. And Dr. Bhattacharya says there is a lot of good news to tell. We're not getting it from the media, but uh, but there is some good news to tell in spite of the fact that the pandemic is still going on. For instance, the case fatality rate from the virus has dropped sharply since March. The infection survival rate is 99.95% for people under 70 and 95% for people over 70. Hospitals are much better equipped to handle patients with improved ventilator protocols, improved management of outpatients, and new therapeutic strategies to provide relief and recoveries. Moreover, he says, thanks to multiple ongoing clinical trials around the world, there may soon be a safe and effective vaccine. Now, by contrast with their focus on COVID deaths, the media have paid scant attention to the enormous medical and psychological harms from the lockdowns in use to slow the pandemic. Despite the enormous collateral damage lockdowns have caused, England, France, Germany, Spain, and other European countries are all intensifying their lockdowns once again. Now, by lockdowns, he says we mean the all-too-familiar shuttered schools and universities, closed playgrounds and parks, silent churches, bankrupt stores and businesses that have become emblematic of American civic life these past months. Dr. Bhattacharya says the relative dearth of reporting on the harms caused by the lockdowns is odd since lives lost from the lockdown are no less important than lives lost from COVID infection. But they've received much less media attention. He says the harms from lockdown have been catastrophic. Consider the psychological harm. He says since you're reading this in lockdown, you can undoubtedly relate to the isolation and loneliness these policies can cause by shutting down typical channels for social interaction. In June, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated that one in four young adults had seriously considered suicide. Opioid and other drug-related deaths are on a sharp and unsurprising upswing. He says the burden of these policies falls disproportionately on some of the most vulnerable, 
For example, isolation led to a 20% increase in dementia-related deaths among our elderly population. Moreover, retrospective analysis of the lockdown in the U.S. showed that patients skipped cancer screenings, childhood immunizations, diabetes management visits, even treatment for heart attacks. Meanwhile, internationally, the lockdowns have placed 130 million people on the brink of starvation, 80 million children at risk for diphtheria, measles, and polio, 1.8 million patients at risk of death from tuberculosis, and the lockdowns in developed countries have devastated the poor in poor countries. The World Economic Forum estimates the lockdowns will cause an additional 150 million people to fall into extreme poverty, 125 times as many people as have died from COVID. Now, I realize those are just numbers, but there's an actual human soul attached to every one of those numbers. So don't just, you know, relegate them to statistics. Dr. Bhattacharya says, though there has been some coverage of lockdown harms, the media have not paid the same attention to it as they have to COVID deaths. If there's a COVID death tracker, then it should be side-by-side with a lockdown death tracker. And I'm just going to take a quick aside here for a moment. Why don't they do that? Why wouldn't they do that? Why is it that, generally speaking, I'm painting with the broad brush here, but generally speaking, the news media, the mass media, tends to side with the authoritarian approach. I mean, I, I, I don't know what to, you know motive could possibly drive that, unless it's just that sense of a contact high from authority. But it does seem kind of curious. Dr. Bhattacharya says, the lack of balanced media attention towards the good news about the virus and the costs of lockdowns comes with its own cost. Without a balanced approach to COVID news, the public can't make informed choices about COVID policy, such as school closures. Even a diligent citizen cannot make an informed judgment about the wisdom of continuing lockdowns if their only benefits, if only their benefits are emphasized rather, and the costs downplayed. And you know, the media has an obligation to show both, or at least it did back when it believed itself to be objective. He says, finally, the neglect of the good COVID news breeds panic and fear, which is never a good public health strategy. The public should know that the pandemic will not be here forever. And while these are challenging times, and for many families, life-changing times, like every other pandemic in human history, the COVID-19 pandemic will end. But Dr. Bhattacharya says, with wise and informed policy choices, we can reduce its ultimate toll of death and human misery. I like it. I wish more people would subscribe to it. But then again, this is why we're wrong thinkers, right? We question (laughs) these things. I wanted to share an article, too. This is uh, from Peter Clark. This is on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Don't underestimate the power of the invisible hand to drive COVID-19 safety measures. Yesterday, I frustrated a bunch of people on Facebook by suggesting that if an idea was so good that it has to be made mandatory by the state, then maybe it wasn't such a good idea in the first place. And it really angered a lot of people. Brian, 260,000 people have died from COVID. And, and, you know, I have to ask, okay, well, what's the number? At what point does your life not become your own? At what point do you forfeit ownership to some third party? And it mostly fell on deaf ears. 
which is again why I make the distinction at the beginning of this program that I'm I'm here to talk to the lions. The the sheep are just not they're not ready to to break free of the fear. But I would like to know why do so many people believe it's preferable to force others to do what they want rather to do what you know the 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 forcing person wants rather than allow people to make their choices freely. And it's because they don't trust people to make choices. They don't trust the market. They underestimate the power of the invisible hand. That term coined by Scottish philosopher and economist Adam Smith that refers to the unseen market forces that drive an economy. I won't, I won't share the whole article with you, but I'm going to give you a couple of excerpts. Again, this is from Peter Clark, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. He says, amid the COVID-19 pandemic, the question of enforcing compulsory mask-wearing laws has been fiercely contested, frequently devolving into a debate over political ideology rather than a discourse based on hard science. Naturally, proponents of mask-wearing prefer this prescription to be codified in formal statutes rather than an unspoken courtesy. However, he asks, could it be possible that people still opt to take precautionary measures even in the absence of such laws. And better yet, couldn't owners of private institutions such as stores, restaurants, and entertainment venues implement their preventative measures as conditions of patronizing their establishment? The incentives are present to keep their customers safe when faced with the uncertainties of the pandemic. For instance, in the state of Arizona, the issue of mask-wearing mandates has been left up to local governments. Now, most municipalities have opted to require masks while occupying indoor venues, threatening a hefty fine for noncompliance. Back in June, for example, the city of Phoenix imposed a $250 fine for individuals repeatedly refusing to wear a mask. The suburb of Chandler, Arizona, imposed a fine of $100 or 30 days in jail for mask-related infractions. By contrast, residents, residents rather, and visitors in the towns and cities located in Pinal County are not subject to mask requirements but are strongly encouraged to wear masks. Now, this conjures the image of barefaced shoppers casually strolling along without masks in the local grocery store. But Peter Clark says, in reality, despite the absence of formal restrictions, this couldn't be further from the truth. He says, most stores within Pinal County require that all customers wear masks, generally posting signs on the front door, warning prospective patrons of this requirement. Not only are the stores and eateries of these communities filled with mask-wearing customers, but many establishments are taking measures not required by any municipality in the state. These shrewd business owners, anticipating that customers may avoid doing business if masks are not required at their brick-and-mortar locations, rather, are proactively responding to the concerns of their clients. Therefore, they have elected to require wearing a mask as a precondition of doing business. And in addition to urging patrons to wear masks, they're also making concentrated efforts to increase sanitation, placing markers indicating the presence of six-foot gaps to maintain social distancing. The smell of bleach and other disinfectants products fills the entryway of the grocery stores. Employees are constantly cleaning. The local grocery store never looked more pristine, and frankly... He says the increased frequency of cleaning and sanitation schedules was long overdue. The local mart, local Walmart rather, is even wiping down and sanitizing the carts, a sight that few would have predicted even a year ago. All of these steps completely in, implemented without laws, penalties, or ordinances through non-political channels. 
proof it can work. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. I'm going to encourage you, go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and check out the rest of the article by Peter Clark on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. It is fantastic stuff, and it's it's a, a powerful reminder that this micro-level self-governance on the part of local business owners can take care of, you know, the concerns over, but will people, you know, do the right thing? And there are advantages, he points out, to informal rules. The power of the invisible hand, he explains that very well. And it's just so much better than trying to force people. If you, want to, if you want to make people divide up into warring tribes, politicize the issue, put political force, put government force behind something. And people will very predictably line up along partisan lines and everything will become a life or death matter. And if you need further proof, I would say look to countries like Sweden, Norway, Finland. <laughs> they've, they've done this. I'm sure there are others as well, but these are the ones I'm most aware of that have really stepped up you know, to, to face the pandemic without the heavy hand of government being their guiding force. And I think their results are very favorable. They're certainly no worse than those places that did clamp down with a heavy hand and threaten people and otherwise bring that police state mentality to bear. Speaking of police state mentality, holy cow. Have you seen what is happening in Los Angeles? I'm going to share on the on the show notes an article from Brad Palumbo. This was published last Friday on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Time to cancel everything. L.A. Mayor's new lockdown order plagued by absurd inconsistency and overreach. The subheadline here. Many Los Angeles residents are left wondering whether their afternoon stroll is now a criminal offense. I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of stuff that uh, people like myself who are, are more inclined towards freedom, we look at Los Angeles and go, yeah, no thanks. But even Los Angeles residents at this point are, are just like, what do we do? What can we do? Brad Palumbo has a marvelous, marvelous write-up of this, and I would encourage you, look at his article, look at the conclusions, and again, this is, I'll, I'll just share with you this thought from it. He says, the fiasco in Los Angeles offers a painful reminder of the dysfunction and inconsistency that are sure to follow any attempt by government planners to strip individuals of their personal agency and liberty. If you want to see what social, I'm sorry, social, centralized decision-making does, what central planning does, it almost always creates a hell on earth. And while some may disagree with that choice of words to describe Los Angeles, I'm still going to stick with it. What a hellish existence to think, man, can I walk outside? I mean, they actually, I think I saw a tweet last night saying that if you, you cannot even leave your home. Effectively, everybody's being placed under house arrest. I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> that is just more than, than I think uh, we should be willing to bear. Now, I have another piece I want to share with you. This one I'm going to go into some detail on. Uh, Chloe Anagnos describes some of the interesting unintended consequences we can trace back to the lockdowns. And this is not just in Los Angeles County. This is everywhere. 
four ways that the lockdowns are impacting young people. And as I read through this, I thought, holy cow, this rings very true. I say this because I've got, uh, I still have four kids at home and I'm seeing this happen. Chloe Anagno says, as America nears the end of a messy election process, COVID-19 remains a hot topic, but as concerns regarding the potential dangers associated with the virus vary greatly depending on what side of the political spectrum you find yourself. She says there's yet another related aspect that's caused a great debate, and that is the effect of lockdowns. As more information comes in, we're better equipped to understand how far the effects of these lockdowns go. And she lists four ways lockdowns are impacting young people in America. Okay, this first one isn't going to surprise you. Lockdowns brew political divisions. Whereas President Donald Trump has long been an advocate of lesser restrictions, Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden seems to take the opposite route. Not only does he see lockdowns as a must, but he promises to push for federal mask mandates, believing that a stroke of his pen will be enough to force 328 million people to cover their faces until COVID is under control. Sounds about right. Moreover, she says, according to research from the Brookings Institute, political party support is usually the most important variable in explaining attitudes and behaviors surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. By politicizing the pandemic and turning it into a means to restricting Americans' freedoms, politicians further deepened the ideological gap between left and right, prompting many to call for a definitive end to the country as we know it. But consolidating tribal feelings among the population isn't the only negative consequence of widespread lockdowns. Secondly, there is a decline in mental health. Since mid-March, she writes, states have implemented stay-at-home orders in a variety of degrees. By labeling businesses as essential and non-essential, state officials forced many businesses to shut down. But as business owners who dared to go against state orders were slapped with fines and even imprisonment, other businesses managed to survive, even if in a limited capacity and only after laying workers off. In some cases, workers were told they could carry their business from home, prompting many to wonder if the then-growing work-from-home trend was going to accelerate. Employees who were suddenly thrust into this type of environment reported mixed reviews. Some loved it, claiming they felt more connected to their family, less stressed, more likely to become more efficient. Others reported that things were not looking up. She says in some cases, people saw an increase in negative behavior, while others reported difficulty dealing with addictions, depression, and other mental issues. According to an August survey of workers who were forced to work from home due to the pandemic, 55% of workers said they were struggling with burnout, with more than half the respondents saying that working from home actually increased their workload. She says perhaps things would have been different if businesses had been allowed to deal with the pandemic on their own, but lockdowns imposed working arrangements on people who simply weren't mentally prepared for them. Number three, she says shopping therapy is turning into an addiction. Okay. I'm not going to name names, but I've seen this happen with my own kids. I mean, the, the the Amazon and DHL and, you know, FedEx people, they pay us very regular visits. And and among the workers forced to lock up in their homes, Chloe and Agno says, uh, many have reported dealing with previous addictions or mental health issues while locked away. And and, and one of the things that they have, have found is that shopping addicts, are finding this a very difficult time to refrain from their addiction. 
Now, she's got some interesting stats to back this up. According to CouponLawn.com um, and one of their surveys, out of the 1,100 U.S. work-from-home workers who participated in the survey, at least 63% claim they overspend while working exclusively from home. And another 48% said they feel their overspending habit has become a problem which may require therapy. The average weekly spending of the respondents gravitated between $277.54 for Gen Z to $331.36 for Gen X workers, the group that tends to spend the most from while working at home. Boomers, you're doing okay. Your average was $223.90 weekly. But if anything, she says this shows that different environments may have changed a lot about their daily routine, making them more likely to use retail therapy as a coping mechanism. Boredom, or maybe the over-reliance on the Internet due to the social distancing mandates, may also have played a role. But Chloe Anagno says whatever the reason, the fact is that working from home is a legitimate way to get things done. But to some, the stress of being forced to work from home without much training is also very real. Finally, number four, Lockdowns in children equals more suicide attempts. In California, medical professionals told reporters they're seeing more patients being rushed to the hospital due to suicide attempts during the lockdowns than than they are seeing COVID-19 patients. In Georgia, hospitals such as Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta have seen a 25% rise in trauma cases during the lockdown. Many of these involving penetrating trauma such as gunshot wounds and blunt force trauma such as falls. But the stress caused by the stay-at-home orders isn't just impacting adults. Children are also suffering. So the conclusion she comes to is this. To millennials and Zoomers who are complaining their new work-from-home habits are hurting their pocketbook, the thought that government might implement another lockdown may sound terrifying. After all, the U.S. economy shrank at a 4.8% annual rate in the first three months of the year. All the while, over 100,000 small businesses were forced to shut down due to the COVID lockdown report. By the way, most of those businesses now closed forever. But with workers seeing changes described as temporary becoming the new normal, their financial and career prospects will certainly suffer. In fact, she says in many cases, they uh, may have to work from home for a much longer period of time. What else are they going to have to deal with? Will their income continue to shrink? Will they have more anxiety, depression, suicide attempts? The bottom line question here is, is, are the lockdowns worth the collateral damage that comes along with them? Are we losing people to hopelessness? This is The Brian Hyde Show.